As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. And we're going to begin our reading at uh, verse 13 of chapter 52 and read through verse 9 of chapter 53 as we think about Christ our suffering servant. So this is one of Isaiah's passages on the servant of the Lord and this servant song goes from uh, Isaiah 52 to 53. So we're going to begin our reading at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and read through the ninth verse of chapter 53. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So, he shall, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, then like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. One of the more difficult articles of our faith that we confess is the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to really contemplate his suffering and to meditate on it is a difficult thing to do. 
I don't know how you felt singing all seven of those difficult verses from Psalm 22. Um, you almost just wish it was over. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty tune. It's a terrible thing to keep singing about verse after verse of the suffering of the Lord. Um, it's not something that we like to meditate on, but it is important for us to meditate on. It's crucial for our healing, as Isaiah says, that he suffered and that we understand why he suffered. Um, and there's few texts in the Old Testament that make his suffering clearer for us uh, than Isaiah's servant song here. Uh, for understanding the suffering of our Lord and how we should think about it and how it is for our salvation. And as we think about this song, we have a rather puzzling description, first, of the Lord's servant. Um, two descriptions that seem not to go well together. And that's what we want to think first about the puzzling description of the Lord's servant in Isaiah's servant song here. Uh, and then think about the persistent affliction with which he is afflicted so that we can understand it correctly. One of the things we see in this passage is there are people who misunderstand why he's suffering. Uh, and that comes across both in uh, Psalm 22 and what people saw on the crucifixion of our Lord. Um, and finally, it calls us to a proper consideration of the work of the servant to rightly understand what he did for us. So that's how we want to think about uh, this song, this servant song together this evening, the puzzling description, the persistent affliction, and a proper consideration of him and his work. Um, as I said, this is called one of the servant songs in Isaiah uh, that goes from really 52.13 to 53.12. We didn't read the end of the servant song uh, because that deals more with his being glorified by the Father, and that's not what we're thinking about so much. Uh, the chapter break here is somewhat unfortunate because it breaks up the thought that's going on. Um, our chapters are not original. Isaiah didn't sit down and write, okay, now chapter 53. Um, he wasn't writing like that, so we've put them together so I can say to you, turn to chapter 53. It'd be hard if it wasn't numbered for me to tell you where to turn. Um, but we, we know that was not original. So sometimes we have these chapter headings that drop right in the middle of the thought. But the song really begins in 52.13. And it begins with this uh, puzzling, somewhat puzzling description of the servant of the Lord because so much of the description is wonderful um, of who he is and what he will do when he comes. Um, and God calls us to pay attention to this servant. He begins by saying, behold. Um, maybe we don't pause and meditate over that word when we read it in Scripture. It's not a word we use very much. Um, we don't say, behold, can you hand me that? Um, we don't use it very much, but the Bible uses it in a particular way to call our attention to something important. And when the Lord says, behold, my servant, uh, we're called to pay particular attention to this servant. Um, and if behold wasn't enough to call our attention to him, uh, the description of him here would and should be enough. Uh, because several important things are said about the servant. Uh, first of all, it's important that the Lord comes and says, Behold, my servant. This is someone who actually serves me. Um, Isaiah's book is filled with people who are faithless servants, who do not do what the Lord has called his people to do. Here is one who is a faithful servant to the Lord. He is my servant, the Lord says, identified as a faithful one before the Lord, uh, in contrast to so much of the faithlessness that was in Israel at this time. Here's one who is the servant of the Lord. He is my servant. Um, he's my servant and he's one who acts wisely. 
that too is something that could not always be said of Israel and is not always said of God's people. We don't always act wisely. But here is that combination we look for in wisdom, one who knows what is wise and who is able to apply it, who is able to live it, uh, to use it for his advantage. It's that combination of wisdom and effectiveness um, about this servant. And so he's one who serves the Lord. He's one who acts wisely. And he's highly exalted. Uh, Notice what is said of this servant. Shall act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up. Um, Now, in in Isaiah's writings, that should stick out to us. Um, What was one of Isaiah's seminal moments that is laid out for us in his prophecy? It was that day he saw that vision of God in his throne room. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what did he see about the Lord? That he was high and lifted up. That he was on his throne. And so now Isaiah's attention is being called to a particular servant who is my servant. Who will act wisely. And he will be high and lifted up. Uh, What kind of language is this? Well, it's divine language. This is not just any kind of servant. This is a divine servant. One who is, like Isaiah saw God, high and lifted up, exalted. This is something of divine glory. And he's going to come and do a wonderful work that's described in verse 15 of chapter 52. A wonderful work. And we know it's a great work by the way it's described. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has not been told, which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Um, What does that mean? They're not sure. But it sounds great. Right? He will sprinkle many nations. That is a sense of purifying, cleansing. Here is one who is going to do a worldwide work of opening eyes and opening minds in in a truly great and wonderful way, but the specifics of which are not told here. That's what makes the description kind of puzzling. He's going to do this wonderful work, but we're not told clearly what that work is. And if all of that were just there on its own, that would be somewhat puzzling enough to try to picture together. Who is this servant who will act wisely, who will be divine, who will do this worldwide work? That would be enough for us to wrap our minds around had we not also read about his great suffering. Despite all this glory, despite all of this faithfulness, despite all of this wisdom and work, his suffering is going to be horrific. And that's what's really puzzling, what, what, that, that, what verse 14 sets right in the middle. He's so great, but he suffers so terribly. Um, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Um, he's inhumanly disfigured. It's sort of that first view that Job's friends get of him 
in his suffering when they come to see him. We're told in Job 2.12, his friends come to mourn, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. He was marred. He was beyond human appearance, so much so that when they saw him, they wept. Maybe you've had that experience seeing a a friend who's suffering with cancer and you get a sense of them all emaciated and you remember what they were like when they were healthy and then to see them like that is so hard. Um, That's what the puzzling description is here. Someone who is so great, so faithful, so glorious, and yet is so suffering, so afflicted. Um, And it's meant to be a kind of puzzling description. And it's only until Jesus Christ comes into the world that we can really make sense of it. Only when he comes into the world can we really make sense of it. He is the one who Isaiah is describing. Who acts wisely. Who is gloriously exalted. Whose work will affect the nations. Who gives insight and understanding and yet suffers unspeakable anguish. And this suffering is meant to confront us with the question, why? Why is he like this? Why is he so marred? Why does he look the way he looks? Um, What does his awesome glory and work have to do with this severe suffering? Um, And that's what the, the, the the passage goes on to talk about. Why this persistent affliction? Why this suffering? Um, how we relate his suffering to glory. Um, and immediately we're confronted with the problem that people see the suffering servant, but they fail to recognize the significance of what is taking place. Right? That's sort of the description that comes to begin chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Lord has given a divine message. Uh, The Lord has spoken, but who has believed it? Who has understood it? Who has perceived what is happening? Um, Maybe we we struggle with that as we read the the Gospels sometimes when Jesus sits down with his disciples and says, you know, all these things have to take place, that I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to suffer, and I have to die, and on the third day rise. Um, And then the next time he talks to them, they seem not to understand why these things are happening to him. And he'll take them aside again and say, all these things have to happen to the Son of Man. He has to suffer and die in Jerusalem and on the third day rise. And then they'll say, where are you going? What's happening? Um, Who has believed our message? Uh, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has a proper understanding of what the Lord is doing? Um, Because people don't understand that in this suffering, the Lord is bearing his arm in power. Right? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, This isn't the first time Isaiah has talked about the arm of the Lord. If we went just back to 52 verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Right When God bears His holy arm, He's acting to save His people. And Isaiah is saying, the Lord is bearing His arm in this suffering servant who's going to come and save His people. And who knows what He's doing? No one. 
No one seems to understand what the Lord is doing, what the Lord is at work doing here. And although people have heard the message and they've seen something of his power, they don't understand the significance. And isn't that the true of the Lord Jesus Christ? He comes into the world, talks about the kingdom, bears the arm of the Lord in power, right? Doing things that no one has ever done, uh, that, that the scriptures specifically say only the Christ will do when he comes. Um, and people still don't understand what he's doing. And they will look at the wonder of the work he's doing and say, well, that must be demons at work. He must be in the service of the devil. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why don't they get it? Why don't people see him for who he is? Well, in the first place, because he doesn't look like anything significant. Um, He doesn't look like anything significant in the world's eyes. Right? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Um, His birth is, as one commentator put it, unimpressive and unpromising. This is sort of ordinary plant imagery, but plants that have a dubious future. Um, That's plants that I plant. They all have dubious futures. Uh, But especially in this area, we tend to plant plants in dry ground. Um, And if you don't water them, they have a dubious future. I learned this when I was younger and my parents would go out of town. They would say, be sure to water the plants while we're gone. And then you'd forget and you'd try to water them desperately when they're about to come back. But by then it's too late. They're in dry ground. They needed help before then. Um, That's that's a picture of growth that's not too promising. And and that's that's what people are saying about, gee, we've seen him grow up. It's not that promising. Um, I really don't see what the big deal is. People would say, this is, this is Jesus from Nazareth, right? The carpenter's son? This is the big deal? This is who people are coming to see? Um, what's so impressive about him? His birth isn't all that impressive. His life isn't all that impressive. Right? He grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing that attracts people to him. Nothing on the surface that would draw people. In fact, quite the opposite. He's the kind of person that people look away from. But there was nothing to draw us to him, but he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Not only was there not much to look at, but there was not much to draw you to him. He looks like someone who's suffering, who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Now, there's nothing to draw people to him. That's because they haven't really understood, right? People would say, his, this is Jesus from Nazareth. What's so impressive about him? Um, well, the angels could have told you, right? His birth was far from unimpressive and ordinary, um, he was brought forth the world overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, brought in through the Virgin Mary, heralded by angels, named by his Father in heaven as Jesus, the one who would save people from their sins. His birth was hardly un- uninteresting. His life was hardly unimportant. 
Uh, he lived a life of perfect service to his father. Um, people misunderstand the Lord. They misunderstand him and what he's come to do. Um, that's one of the reasons they can't understand his suffering. And if we want to really understand this persistent affliction with which he is afflicted, then we have to understand that this is not about him, it's about us. If we really want to understand what's happening in the suffering of this servant, we have to understand that his per persistent affliction is not on account of what he's done, it's on account of what we've done. Why is he suffering the way he's suffering? Why is he so afflicted? It's on our account that he's afflicted. That's what's hard to read in this passage for those who love the Lord and put their faith and trust in Him to be reminded again of why He suffered. He suffered because we supplied the sin and suffering. He's not suffering for His own sins. He's suffering for ours. And that's what Isaiah makes clear. We're the ones supplying all of the grief, all the sin. You know, if we look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53, the two great themes are, are us and Him. And it goes back and forth on us, us and Him, and from our perspective in a terrible way. Because they are our griefs that He bears. And they are our sorrows that He carries. And they are our transgressions that He's paying for. And it's our iniquities that cause Him to be wounded. We are supplying all of those things. They belong to each of us individually and all of us together. Right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything we supply is all of the terrible things. And what does he do? He carries all the consequences of the things that are ours. Right? It's our grief, but He bears it. It's our sorrows that He carries. It's our transgressions for which He's pierced. And it's our iniquities for which He's crushed. People haven't understood His suffering. He's not suffering for himself. He's not suffering for what he's done. He's suffering for what his people have done. And why is he doing it? This is what people haven't understood. He's doing it that he might make us whole. He's suffering in our place so that we can have peace with God. That's what this great exchange is doing. He's carrying all these things that are ours, the consequences of all these things that are ours. Why? So that we might be whole. So that He can make peace between us and God. So that we can be healed through what He suffers. Um, by His wounds, we are healed. That's a, that's a terrible but beautiful picture of what Christ's suffering accomplishes for His people. Every wound that is opened up on Him closes a wound on us. 
Everything that he suffers is setting us free. Everything he's being crushed with is making us whole. Um, It's a remarkable picture of what he's suffering. And it needs to be properly explained because otherwise people think he's dying for his affliction. That he deserves what's happening to him. Right? And that's what happened. People looked at him, saw the suffering and said, he must be afflicted by God. God must be doing this to him because he doesn't love him. Or because he's done something to earn God's wrath. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can come along and say, no, no, he's not suffering for his own sin. He's suffering for the sins of his people. He's not suffering because he did something wrong. He's suffering because we did something wrong. He's making us whole. Every affliction of his life from the manger to the grave, was on account of each and every one of us that he might heal all those who put their trust in him. That's the significance of question 37 of the catechism that we read. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. This needs to be explained to us. We need to understand his suffering in our place as the suffering that sets us free, that delivers us from our sins and gains for us eternal life. Because otherwise we look and think there's something wrong with him. And it causes people to turn away from him. That's why God's word needs to speak, his gospel needs to be heard, so that we give a proper consideration of his son. Because everyone is called to give a proper consideration to this servant. To the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. He did not need to carry our evil. He did not need to do this. He was not forced to carry them like Simon was forced to carry his cross. Jesus voluntarily took our sins upon himself. He volunteered for this service. And when he was, a, when he was judged um, before a tribunal, even though he was innocent, he did not open his mouth to defend himself. He didn't open his mouth in protest when he was led to being judged for our sins. His sacrifice was given willingly. Um, That's why Pontius Pilate, that rat, gets mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Um, Whenever I get a chance, I call him a rat, because that's what he was. He was a rat. Um, And and he gets mentioned, right? There are only a few people, that human beings, that get mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Jesus, he's an important one. Uh, Mary, she's important when it comes to his conception. But why does he get a mention? Why is that name of that rat remembered by God's people every Lord's Day? What is the importance of, of Pontius Pilate? Because there was one thing he did right as a judge. And that was he said over and over again as a judge, I find no fault in this man. I, as a judge, find no fault in this man. 
I can't see what he's done wrong. Um, that's the one right thing he did as a judge. He declared him innocent over and over and over again. Three times in John's gospel alone, he says, I find no guilt in him. Why do you want him crucified so badly? I find no guilt in him. Um, that's what he did as a judge. It's the one good thing he did as a judge was he declared Jesus to be innocent. And then he condemned him to die. That's what makes him a rat. Because he didn't do what a judge ought to do, which was stand up for justice. He was too worried about his own political position. He was too worried that word would get back to Rome, you're no friend of Caesar's. Um, you know, Pontius Pilate actually had a friend of a friend who knew Caesar, and that guy had just been killed for treason. So he was particularly open to this charge when people said, you're no friend of Caesar's. Because his friend had just been killed for not being a friend of Caesar's. He was particularly open to that charge. And he decided to do the politically expedient thing rather than the right thing. Um, that's what makes him a politician. And therefore, in technical terms, a rat. Um, but what is the point of Pontius Pilate? Why does he get mentioned in the Apostles' Creed? It's so that we might always remember, even though he didn't do his duty as a judge to protect the innocent, he did do his duty as judge declaring Christ innocent. And then he condemned him to die in the worst way that a citizen could be condemned to die. And all of this is meant to prompt the question, if he's being condemned, though innocent, why is he being condemned? And if he knows he's innocent and he doesn't open his mouth in his own defense, why doesn't he? Right? The Lord Jesus clearly could have defended his innocence if he'd wanted to. Um, you know, so the most they ever get out of him is when he says, You've said so. Um, are you a king then? Well, you say, you've said so. Um, he does say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was a matter of defending my kingdom, I could get angels to come and do that. But he doesn't open his mouth to protest his innocence. He doesn't open his mouth in his own defense. And you see, what is all of this making us do? It's saying the judge is declaring him innocent but he's not putting on a defense, and yet he's being condemned to die in the worst way possible. Why is all of this happening? It's not because he's guilty. He's dying because we're guilty. If he's not dying for his own sins, then for whom is he dying? He's dying for us. That's what he wants us to understand by his suffering and death. That's why we say, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Jesus was innocent, and yet he was condemned and sentenced to death and didn't open his mouth in protest. And he willingly became a sacrifice for his people's sins. Not dying on account of his own sin. But on account of ours. 
Um, he did that like unlike any other sacrifice that had ever been offered. Because he went willingly. A lamb doesn't know it's going to be sacrificed. Animals don't know that they're going to be slaughtered. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him when he kept his mouth quiet and didn't argue in his own defense and went out to die. He knew he was innocent, but he did not defend himself. He never opened his mouth in his own defense. Um, he opened his mouth when he was on the cross. He said things from the cross. He said things to provide for his mother. He said things to comfort his servant. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He said things to express the anguish of his body, a thirst. He said things to express the anguish of his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He opened his mouth to pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He opened his mouth to pray for his own soul. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he opened his mouth to declare to us his work accomplished. It is finished. But he never opened his mouth to defend himself or to seek to avoid the cross because he knew he was going to be executed for us because that's what it would take to make us whole, to make us healed, to bring us into fellowship with God. He willingly submitted himself to execution in our place. Um, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Um, we need to understand that, the nature of that sacrifice, uh, that he was denied his own due process uh, for our sakes, taken out to die as if he were guilty, uh, so that we would know that he wasn't dying for his own guilt. He was dying for ours. Um, and none of his contemporaries considered that. Uh, people still missed that when they saw the Lord on the cross. They still thought he was dying for his own sins. Right? We, we read about that, um, that he was cut down out of the land of the living in the worst way that a Jewish man could be cut down uh, by being crucified. Catechism makes that point. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by his death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. Under God's law to be crucified like that meant you died an accursed death. Christ was taking away our, our curse, our punishment, the wrath of God against sin, the whole reason we had to be afraid of the wrath of God, the curse that sin brings of death. And what's the good news of his cross? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Who considered it? How many people understood what they saw? Um, there were plenty of people that still mocked him. Um, he saved others. He can't save himself. Son of God, talk a big game. Come down off the cross and we'll believe in you. Um, God loves him. I'm sure God will intercede for him. 
you know, all of those awful things. And even the guy crucified next door is saying the same thing. Um, who considered it? Well, we know that the father considered it. The father knew what was happening to him. Um, they made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, the Lord, the Lord saw to it that his son was not pitched in a common grave, um, but buried as a righteous man should have been buried. Uh, the father gave consideration to his son. And the Lord gives us this passage that each of us might give proper consideration to his son. Uh, so that we might not make the mistake of thinking that he somehow was afflicted for something he did. Um, that he's somehow to be forgotten. Um, this passage demands that we consider him. Uh, that we properly understand him. Um, and in the preaching of Christ crucified, every time we preach him crucified, we are presenting this same scene that confronted his contemporaries. To preach Christ crucified is to see him portrayed before you. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.1. It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. And the question that Isaiah asks is still pertinent to all of us. Have you considered him? Do you understand him? Do you understand what he did for you by his death on the cross? Because there's only two ways to regard Christ. You can continue to misunderstand him and persist in misunderstanding like the people that saw him crucified and went home and had dinner and didn't think anything of it. Or the Pharisees who said good riddance to bad rubbish. Um, we, can, we can persist in that misunderstanding or we can understand the truth. But he was suffering for us. All of his life but especially on the cross, especially at the end. He suffered the curse and the wrath of God to set us free. Um, and he is to be publicly portrayed as crucified, preached as crucified so that we would see him and recognize that he died not for himself but for us. To set us free. To regain for us holiness and righteousness and life that we might live with our God. Because he is the only way we can be reconciled to God. By his death. He is the only one who can carry your griefs and take them away. And carry your sorrows and take them away. And carry your iniquities and take them away. And carry your transgressions and take them away. He's the only one who can do that. And if by faith in Christ we've received him, then all of that has been carried away by him. We have nothing more to face, nothing more to fear. And if we've not put our faith and trust in him, we are still trying to carry all those things that we cannot carry. Um, Christ came to set sinners free. He suffered to relieve our burden. And so have we considered God's servant Jesus? Do you see his cross as the punishment you deserve? Do you see your debt paid and your peace and healing there? If so, then rejoice with the psalmist. If not, put your faith and trust in Christ that this profession might be ours. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, 
who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do not enjoy reflecting on the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, but how crucial it was for our salvation that he was willing to come and to carry the consequences of all the things that we have done. When we meditate on our griefs and our sorrows and our iniquities and our transgressions, Lord, we know that they are many and how thankful we are that the suffering servant came into the world to bear them all for us, that he might reconcile us to you and that he might heal us by his wounds. We thank you that he was willing to come and to suffer an innocent man for sinners, uh, to give the sacrifice alone that could set us free. May we look to him alone as our hope and salvation, that he has accomplished all that's necessary for our salvation by his cross and has won for us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We thank you for him. May we all look to him and hope in him always. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's take up our Psalters together and as a song of response, turn to number 69B and sing all the verses together, standing to sing number 69B, thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free.
Dear beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts now to the Lord and receive his blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be and abide with you all. Amen. People of God, go in peace.